Well, good morning, gang. Uh, apologies up front here. I'm starting off uh, today's devotion in Galatians a little late, actually more than a little late, like 26 minutes late, according to my clock. Uh, and, but there's a good reason, or at least there's a good excuse. Uh, my brother from California is in town with family, and uh, we had a late night last night with all of the kids playing and having an uproarious good time. And so that means a late morning for our devotion today. But uh, I'm glad to be with you today as we're looking, we're continuing our series uh, in Galatians this morning. Good morning, Chris and Nancy and Katie, I think I saw in there. I don't see everybody, but uh, good morning to all of you. So we are looking at Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24 uh, this morning. And I'm not going to read the passage all up front. I'm just going to kind of introduce it and then we'll take it piecemeal as we go through today. So, uh, Karl Barth, who you've heard my uh, compatriot uh, and co-pastor here, uh, Bruce Hillman, talk about in his latest uh, predestination series, Karl Barth is probably, I mean, arguably the most influential theologian in the last century. And of course, some would say for good, many would say for bad, and everything in between. But nevertheless, he was very prolific. He had written an awful lot. And he was once asked uh, what his 9,233-page long-writing church dogmatics was really all about. And after a brief pause, he gave this answer. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's how he summed up his 9,000-plus-page document. Now, some have suggested, of course, that he was being simplistic or that he was being sort of cheeky, but I actually don't think so. I don't think that he was. I think truly at bottom, the more one thinks about the Christian faith and what it really is all about, it's whether that statement is true or not. Uh, to st or to state it in another way, um, the Christian faith sort of boils down to because the Bible tells me so, I know Jesus loves me. Well, that means then we have to ask ourselves, do we believe what the Bible actually says is true? Do we believe the testimony of the prophets and the apostles who came before us that their message really is ultimately given from God? Uh, last week, one of the things we heard in our introductory section as we looked at Galatians 1 1 through 10, uh, is Paul basically defending his apostleship. He was doing this because a group called the Judaizers had come into the churches in Galatia, saying that basically Paul wasn't a real apostle, that he had gotten some sort of uh, hand-me-down gospel from some, uh, you know, bad authority, that he wasn't actually teaching the true gospel. And ultimately, the reason they attacked his apostleship is because they weren't, they weren't comfortable with this, quote, grace gospel. I've heard people basically call the gospel that we preach, by the way, the grace gospel. I, I literally, that's like how they attack it. And I'm like, uh, that literally, that is what the gospel is. Like, yes, I have no problem with that attack. Please attack me with that word again. Call me a purveyor of grace gospel. I'm all about that. 
Uh, but anyway, so they didn't like that. The Judaizers were very uncomfortable with this. These people couldn't stand the idea that Paul was telling Gentiles, non-Jews, that they could be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from anything that they do, any works on their behalf. And so they were saying, you know, and you can find an allusion to this in verse 10, well, Paul's lessening the requirements of the real gospel in order to please the Gentiles, we're the ones that are truly preserving the gospel. We've been followers of Christ longer than Paul. Contrary to what he said, you do have to obey God's law, and you do have to eat according to the Jewish law, which means no bacon for you anymore, Gentiles. And you do need to be circumcised if you really are going to be saved on the final day. And so you see the dilemma for Paul, right? I mean, some of what they're saying may be true. And after all, I mean, he did become a Christian later. I mean, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is one that's abnormally born. His situation was not like the other apostles. He didn't walk with Jesus during his ministry. And before he was a Christian, he violently persecuted the church of God. And so it would make sense that the gospel he was preaching might be different a little off from what the, quote, real apostles taught. Real apostles being Peter, James, and John, you know, the guys that actually walked the walk with Jesus. And so this was the doubt that was being sown in Galatia and, for that matter, in other churches that Paul was involved in. And so, so to, do, to deal with that, Paul sort of spends the next section of Galatians, one, chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, defending his apostleship and making the case for it. And so the way he does this is first he goes back to his pre-conversion experience. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. He says, uh, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul's first piece of evidence in support of the truth of his gospel, the gospel that he is preaching, is where he came from. The logic of his argument basically goes like this. Guys, based on my past, many of you who know my past, where I came from, steeped in Jewish law and in the traditions of my fathers, there would have been no one happier to preach to people that they needed to follow the law of the Jews to be saved than me. I was all about that law. But you see, that's why your accusation that I'm lessening the message of the gospel doesn't make sense, O Judaizers, because my natural bent would be to do exactly what you're doing. As a matter of fact, I'll even go further. I was so violently opposed to the church's very existence, to this grace gospel message, there is no way I'd even be a Christian if I hadn't had something dramatic happen to me. And indeed, when someone questions the validity of the gospel's message, we can essentially bring up the same fact. We can point out that from all the historical evidence there is, we have no reason to believe that most of the apostles were predisposed to believe this stuff. I mean, what else but this gospel actually accounts for um, the apostle Paul's dramatic change in life besides an encounter with 
God. What makes a coward like Peter suddenly become a man willing to be crucified upside down, according to church history? Uh, what would make a skeptic like Thomas become a missionary to India? Historically speaking, one day there is no such thing as a church, and then suddenly, in the early 30s, a group of Jewish people begin worshiping a man that they say is God, something unthinkable in a Jewish context, especially in a place like Jerusalem. And they do it on a Sunday, and they say they, the reason they do it on a Sunday instead of the traditional Saturday, Sabbath day, is because they say he rose from the dead on that day. There are thousands and thousands of people that have come to believe in a very short time in the first century and the 12 disciples, with the exception of one, all go to a martyr's death for their insistence that they, yes, experience the real risen Christ in the flesh. Now, you see, I mean, people will die for a cause they think is true, but may not be. People don't die for a cause they know isn't true, which would have to be the case with the earliest disciples. And so Paul says, so our message of the gospel of grace is not made up because we would never have believed it ourselves unless we experienced it ourselves. Unless it came, unless it didn't come from, or unless it came from directly from God. And so that leads to the second reason. He then moves to they, the, the fact that they can trust the gospel because of his his conversion, his powerful conversion experience. Listen to verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. What is Paul saying there? Well, Paul is saying, Judaizers, first things first. The reason I preach the message I do is because Jesus Christ himself chose me before the foundation of the world. Notice how much the emphasis is all on God's initiative here. And it is the same with you. First, like Paul, just like Paul, he set you apart before you were born. You are elect, foreordained, predestined to be adopted as his child before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1, 4 says. It says, quote, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want to skip over that too quickly because from our perspective, what it seems like often is we become Christians at some point because we, quote, make a decision to repent and place our trust in Jesus or to be baptized. And that does happen. But according to Paul, First and foremost, the reason it happens is because God elects people from before the foundation of the world. Like Paul, he calls you by his grace. He calls you by his grace. I remember a number of years ago, I got into a, a little debate with a friend of mine about why it was that God chose Abraham. And my friend was saying, well, God probably saw some quality in Abraham that made him worthy of being chosen. And then I looked at the Bible, and I saw that there was no such argument being made at all. As a matter of fact, Abraham, when he was chosen, was Abram, and he was worshiping some sort of moon god, at least from what we can tell from the testimony of the Old Testament. He wasn't doing anything particularly godly or good, and yet God said, I want him. And it's the same with you. Uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because he saw some quality in us that was good. Uh, as, as Luther has said, God does not love that which is worthy. God loves that which is unworthy and makes them lovable. God loves that which is unworthy and makes them lovable. 
And so, like Paul, he reveals his son to you. Uh, now, granted, the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God might not come the same way as it did for Paul. Probably not. Generally speaking, it doesn't. Nevertheless, the very fact that you can say today, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died and rose again for the forgiveness of my sins is directly a result of the Holy Spirit being with you. You could not confess that if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that? Ephesians 2 says, you were naturally dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead, made you alive together with Christ. And I've seen this when it happens. It's a beautiful, glorious thing. It's, it's the best thing about my job as a pastor, frankly, is to see people, um, see people come to faith and see the scales fall off and all of a sudden realize that Jesus is who <laughs> the church has been saying he is. Um, and what, why does he do this? When does he do this? Well, when it pleases him. That's what Paul says in this passage. And here there is a great mystery that we're forced to accept that we don't always feel comfortable with. But Paul says, when it pleased him, he revealed his son to him. It pleased God to reveal finally himself to Paul as he was literally on the way to persecute Christians. And so who's doing the verbs all in this, folks? It's, it's all God. It's all the Lord who's taken the initiative. He doesn't see Paul and say, man, that guy looks like a trusty fella. I think uh, I can use him. No. He says, no, that guy looks like a sinner, and I think I can use him. And he says, it's the same thing with you. It's the same thing with you. He has, God uses rusty uh, tools and sharpens them and makes them into something worthy for his use, but there's nothing in here. <laughs> worthy about the tool itself. It's about the person wielding the tool. All right, so finally, Paul then goes to his post-conversion experience to make the case for why the Galatians can indeed trust the gospel he's preaching, that it's not some uh, quacky gospel that he's making up, you know. And so in verse 16, he writes, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Now that would be Aramaic for Peter. And I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Verse 20, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now remember, the accusation that is being lobbed at Paul is that he probably got his gospel from some hand-me-down, washed-up wannabe apostle. I mean, that's basic. The Judaizers are saying, like, he's not preaching the gospel that Jesus would preach. He's preaching some other gospel. He's not preaching the gospel that the early church would preach. He's not preaching the gospel that we preach. He's, he made it up where he got it from somebody else. And he says, no. As a matter of fact, I didn't even go to see the very first apostles to get the message I preached because... God wanted me to learn directly from him. Skip down to verse 21. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Yes, O oh skeptical Judaizers, 
The church glorified God because of my conversion, so you can trust that what I'm preaching is the real thing. In other words, they endorsed me and the message I'm preaching. Indeed, in one of Peter's epistles, he even refers to Paul's writings as scripture. That's true. And so Paul says, yeah, I didn't, I, it's true. I didn't get it from them. I learned it from God. But when I checked with them later, they affirmed everything I was preaching. So don't listen, church in Galatia, to these Judaizers that are telling you my message isn't legit. Peter and James and John have said it's legit. You can trust what I'm telling you. You can trust that the good news, which promises that indeed Jesus has done everything necessary for the forgiveness of your sins we speak of, is the real deal, that it doesn't have anything to do with your works. You can really trust that, because I know you're humans, Galatians, and you want your works to mean something. You want your works to contribute to your salvation. But I'm telling you, it's all about Christ, and you can trust that his work is enough. And that means you can say with confidence, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. All right, gang, that's it for this week. Thanks for watching. I hope you've been encouraged by our time in Galatians today. Next week, we'll pick up chapter two, and then we'll start getting into the real meat of this book. So look forward to being with you then. God bless.